Sources of Denial, a podcast about media, science, and world diplomacy in the night. We talk with Vubalen Fekade, head of the communication unit of ENTRO, which is the Nile Basin Initiative Technical Office for the Eastern Nile. And we also talk with three journalists of the magazine The Niles, Esther Nwombi from Uganda, Ezara Jadalla from Sudan, and Rehab Abdallah Mohsen from Egypt. I'm your host, Emanuele Fantini from IHE Delft, the Institute for Water Education. Our question today is who speaks for the river? In our research on Nile media debates in the Ethiopian, Egyptian and Sudanese press, we often come across expressions like Ethiopia acts this way, Egypt says this, or Sudan fears that. National states and governments are portrayed as the character of a play, almost like person. They feel emotions like fear or hope, they speak and act on the international stage. But today we want to focus on a character that seems missing, the river. Isn't it strange? If you think about states or government, they're not living entities, while the river it is. The river is a living body, it's full of life, animal, plants, but where is its voice? Who can speak for the river? In the previous episode, we discovered how music and songs sometimes have been used to reproduce the sounds of water, of the river flowing, and the sounds of technology and machine used to build water infrastructure. So, who can speak for the river? We always begin our episode with what we call the Voices of the Nile. This time, we will go beyond the Nile, asking to a lawyer, a writer, and a natural scientist, what does it mean for them to speak for a river? Hello, my name is Dr. Erin O'Donnell and I'm a senior fellow at the Melbourne Law School. Today I'm here to talk about legal rights for rivers and what happens when you give rivers legal personality. So last year, four rivers in three different countries were given legal rights, the same kinds of legal rights as people have. So what do we mean by giving legal rights to rivers? They are some of the same kinds of rights as human beings have, but very importantly, legal rights are not the same as human rights. When we talk about legal rights, basically we're talking about the same kinds of rights as you associate with a corporation. So we talk about the right to enter into and enforce contracts, the right to own property, and perhaps most importantly, the right to go to court and to sue and potentially be sued to protect your own interests. So why would rivers need rights? These rights can be used in a number of different ways, but the strongest line of argument so far has been around the idea of giving rivers the right to go to court to protect their own interests. 
So in the past, environmental impacts to rivers have been really difficult to protect in the court system because they've had to be run through the lens of the impacts to humans. Giving rivers legal rights, on the other hand, means that the river itself can go to court and say, this is the impact to me as the river. Now, these legal rights can also be used in other ways. Rivers can acquire rights to water, for instance. So legal rights for rivers can do a lot of different things. But it can also create a paradox. It's a fairly transformative statement. Giving rivers legal rights means that they start to matter fundamentally to the law in ways that nature and the environment hasn't in the past. We're now starting to expect that they can and should look after themselves. And this fundamental shift in the way that we construct nature and rivers within the law brings with it a corresponding reduction in the willingness of people to protect rivers at all. So legal rights can both give and take away environmental protection. My name is Robert Gervin, and I wrote the true story, Who Speaks for the River? The river is the old man. It rises in Canada's Rocky Mountains, descends through the foothills, then flows eastward across the arid southern Alberta prairie. The river valley is green, full of life, a complex ecosystem, set in a semi-desert farmed corner to corner thanks to irrigation from the river. The Alberta government decided to dam the old man in 1984 to try to grow the economy and its own electoral fortunes. Yet many kilometers of river valley, a place of haunting beauty, would be drowned for a project that was hard to justify on economic grounds and had extreme environmental and social costs. The proposed dam was only a few kilometers upstream from the reserve of the long-suffering Pakani First Nation, who'd been largely ignored in the planning for the project. Many were upset at the decision. Environmentalists launched court actions against the dam. When Alberta repeatedly dodged or broke the law, a small group of Pakani committed an act of civil disobedience. Diverse groups claim to speak for the river. Who did? To speak for something, one must understand it, care for it, and put its interest before your own. All of the farmers and some of the Pakani saw the old man primarily as an economic resource for their use. Thus, they did not speak for the best interest of the river as a living thing independent of any human use. Two people, in my opinion, did speak for the river in the highest sense, out of deep care, humility, and knowledge from their respective traditions. Pakani elder Evelyn Kelman and writer and naturalist Kevin Van Tiggum. They had a deep understanding. It saw far and had great weight. Amid the battles of stakeholders, many with legitimate needs, I wish the government had listened to Van Tiggum and Kelman. They spoke for the river. Despite the decision of an independent panel of experts that the dam should be decommissioned, it is in operation today in southern Alberta. I'm Michael McLean. I'm a professor of ecohydrology at IHE Delft in the Netherlands. And I'd like to point out that the Nile is a living river with rich ecosystems and communities of organisms that have evolved over millions of years. So it's important that water be preserved in the river for their benefit, for the health of these ecosystems. Ecosystems that also provide many important services for people living along the river. The preservation of water in rivers 
for purposes of ecosystem protection is something called environmental flows. And this is something that the Nile Basin countries together have focused attention on recently in developing a Nile environmental flows strategy that's going to be implemented among the countries with the support of the Nile Basin Initiative. So in some way, uh, this initiative speaks on behalf of the river and it speaks for the preservation of those ecosystems that uh, host bountiful life and also provide many services to people. So, those were the voices of Erin O'Donnell, Robert Given, Michael McLean, presenting different perspectives about who should speak for the river and how that can be done. As Robert said, to speak for something, you must understand it, care for it, and put its interests before your own. This made me think about Nile hydropolitics, which most of the time is framed in terms of national interest. Can we put the interest of the Nile River before the different national interests? And how can the experience in those other basins inspire people working on the Nile? Who speaks for the Nile? I'm very glad to be joined by Vubalem Fekade to address all these issues. Vubalem is the head of the communication unit at ENTRO, the Eastern Nile Technical Regional Office of the Nile Basin Initiative. Welcome, Vubalem. Thank you. Vubalem, we began this episode by asking who can or who should speak for the river. So I was wondering, are the NBI and ENTRO speaking for the river or, or on behalf of it? Yeah, well, I, I, I could reframe uh, the question in F anyway. Whose river is it anyway? Whose river is the Nile? <laughs> Sometimes we say everybody's property is nobody's property. Anyway, um, countries plan and manage uh, their water resources, uh, the Nile portion of their water resources, as if it begins and ends within that border. But the river uh, knows no boundaries, as you know, from, from source to terminus. So uh, you need, if you want to sustain the river system, you need to 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 uh, manage it uh, on a hydrologic unit perspective. Uh, it's like uh, seeing the tree for the forest. Everybody sees the trees, but the forest ecology is something more uh, interesting and more complex. So um, the Nile Basin Initiative must have been born out of this uh, necessity. Especially maybe 200, 300 years ago, you may not need a river basin organization when the demand and the pressure on the river system was very limited. Now, as population uh, grows and economies grow and uh, people's aspirations change, the, 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 this finite resources bearing um, immense pressures, the, the tragedy of the commons should not befall the Nile. So you need some entity that can uh, manage this shared resource on behalf of future generations as well. Okay, thanks, uh, Vubalem. You, so you mentioned um, the need to uh, communicate collective action, the, the need to represent the Nile as a, as a shared um, river 
as a commons, but uh, who's your main target when you try to communicate uh, uh, these ideas? Or in other, to use your metaphor, who are you trying to convince to look yeah. at the forest <laughs> instead of the tree? Many, many stakeholders and at, at many levels. First of all, basically, government stakeholders, the, the, those who manage the 11 riparian countries and that access and that strive to access the Nile resources, they're very important. You have also other uh, groups that have interest in what's happening in the Nile. You have environmental groups, you have the international and the regional and the national media. You have research institutions, academic groups, also multilateral organizations, of course, local communities as well. So we try to reach out and work with and leverage the resources of other institutions as well that have interest in what's happening in the Nile. Yes, uh, so these are these are where we communicate our main thing. Yes, indeed, if I think uh, about uh, something like the Nile Atlas, eh, that is uh, Nile Basin Atlas, which is uh, produced and published by um, MBI, indeed, there's uh, plenty of, of information, of maps or uh, of data. I wonder, which are the main challenges that you face when you try to reach out to policymakers or to the wider uh, uh, public opinion, particularly in trying to communicate this uh, transboundary approach, this transboundary uh, vision? Yeah, many, many challenges. One is um, um, creating a transboundary perspective, no matter how much you do, and com well, presupposes that you have very enlightened policymakers and decision makers that factor in the transboundary perspective in, in everything they do and plan. The other challenge is also um, the the culture of science informing policymaking. As I as I mentioned to you earlier, this is not unique to our basin. Maybe it is more pronounced, but you have the same in the Western world. Look what happened to the Paris Agreements. But the, the a more problem, the over-politicization of Nile water resources is a big problem the way I look at it. Because we here would like to see the entire uh, Nile water resources problem to be perceived primarily as a resource management problem where science and technology can make a difference. But when you over-securitize and over-politicize the resource management issue, it becomes a hostage to many uh, interests. That's one problem I can mention in general. Another problem I, I see is the water wars narrative. The international media is not also helpful. They come, they prefer to, of course, war and conflict is sex itself. But, for example, in, in these nearly two decades of cooperation, NBI has promoted and achieved a lot of results, which the international media doesn't find very interesting to yeah, cover. Yeah, we, we discussed this, the, this water war frame and the limits of the water war frame applied to the Nile uh, in, a, in a previous uh, episode. And we pointed uh, at the need to also to ask new questions and come up with new stories 
to promote exactly alternative visions, alternative narratives on the night. So if you would choose or if you could set the agenda, um, which narrative, uh, which idea, which representation instead of the water war would you like to okay. suggest? Countries that share a common resource can have conflicts. You, you have conflict with your wife. Conflicts arise between two interacting parties. That's not a big problem. But when that conflict is perceived as a feedback loop to restructure the relationship, to set a new agenda, a new narrative, a new course, a new course of action, when it is perceived that way, conflict then has a transformative power. But what, what is worrisome is if it has degenerative role and, and, escalates misunderstandings instead. So to answer your question, what agenda would I set? I would even, for example, say, what are the shared risks and threats to our collective asset denial? What common future do they have? What are the potentials to be gained by husbanding the resource more prudently? Uh, what, are, what, what is the future of the Nile, for example? How much development can the Nile a bear, or we have unique uh, flora and fauna and biodiversity assets. These are also stakeholders of the Nile in their own rights. Who talks about this? I look back at your at the notes I took when I when we met in uh, in Addis in your office, and I found this mm. uh, sentence which I really like: "The Nile is not a pipe." <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't know what I, I don't remember. And then the, you exactly were mentioning the. Um, the stakeholders, different stakeholders, including animals, flora and fauna. Yeah, yeah. yeah so maybe that's yeah. also another narrative. It's a living system. Yes, it is. You see, it, I, I still think of the Nile as a living system, not as a pipe. Because the, the, the Nile is not that channel through it, only water passes, but also the associated ecosystems, it supports the diversity of flora and fauna, it supports from from the mountains of Ethiopia or the equatorial lakes up to the uh, Mediterranean wetlands. So these are, these are uh, dependent on the Nile. So these are also ecosystems that, that, that should have a share. Yeah, I've learned that uh, last year, uh, different yeah. rivers, including the Ganges uh, or the Yamuna rivers in India, were granted the oh. status of yeah. legal person. And I was wondering, is there uh, something similar also uh, on the agenda for for the Nile, giving some recognizing some rights to the to the Nile to the river itself? Actually, this is very intriguing. I, I'm hearing it for for the first time. This is very interesting. I mean, I would love it. Uh, I would love the Nile to be granted a legal status <laughs> as a legal entity with, with the right. By the way, indirectly, we are dealing with that, by the way. We have, uh, because, for example, in the water resources analysis, we are uh, grappling with the concept of environmental flow. Okay, that is how much water you should leave in the system outside the development paradigm in order to accommodate for these uh, environmental and ecosystem needs. It's the same way. Uh, 
only technically framed. Thanks for joining the Sources of the Nile. Thank you very much. So this was Vubal Mfekade, and you've heard from him the many challenges faced when trying to speak for the river and when trying to put the interests of the river and the wall basin before the national interest. Vubalem also recalled that the Nile is not a pipe supplying countries with water, but is a living ecosystem. And he introduced topics like climate change implications for the river that are absent in the media coverage and debate, at least from what we are seeing in our research. So let's move to the media and let's see if and how journalists can speak for the river too. So if you follow Nile News, you might be familiar with a magazine called The Niles. It is written by journalists coming from different Nile Basin countries, and today we have three of them joining us to discuss what does it mean from a journalist's perspective to speak for the river. So this is a compilation of three interviews recorded with Esther Muwombi from Uganda, with Elzara Jedala from Sudan, and with Rehab Abdel Mohsen from Egypt. So welcome Esther. Thank you very much. Welcome Elzara. Thank you, I'm really happy to be in the broadcast. And finally, welcome Rehab. Hi. So Esther, um, can you tell us more about uh, this magazine, The Niles? How did it start? And I see there are many journalists from different Nile-Basin countries working together uh, and contributing. Yes, uh, The Niles um, is a Nile Benson newspaper. It's a print and online um, media house. It, initially, the mission of the Niles was to re- bring two countries together, South Sudan and Sudan. They began earlier than 2011, right after the independence of, of South Sudan, that was in 2009 they had started to to bring the two countries together in terms of uh, South Sudan journalists meeting with Sudan journalists to work on stories that uh, talk about Nile Basin issues in both the two countries. Um, today, the Niles has changed a bit. The focus is more on the water than it was uh, back then. Now it's entirely about the Nile River in the entire Nile Basin region, all the, the 10 countries in the Nile. And how does it practically work? Eh? Because I, I, I can imagine it's not that easy to work together with so many different journalists from Egypt down to Uganda, also different languages, perhaps different styles. So how does it work? How do you put together your... Uh, issues and the magazine. It's amazing how we 
we work together as journalists in the Nile Basin. Um, most of the journalists speak one language and don't know English. Others speak French, others speak Arabic, and then we have those who speak English like me. So amongst us, there are journalists who at least speak two of the languages. So those journalists translate whenever we meet for editorial meetings. They, they do the translation. If one is speaking in Arabic, another will translate to English. And then if someone is speaking in French, and the, somebody will translate to English and Arabic. And that's how we literally work. It's really amazing. So Rihab, uh, you joined the Niles recently, this year, in a workshop at Lake Tana in Ethiopia, at one of the sources of the Nile. Which are your first impressions about working with colleagues from different Nile countries? Uh, editorially speaking, like how write a piece is something I'm, I'm, I'm totally used to do. But meeting different people from different countries and, and witnessing uh, journalists from different countries and uh, kind of uh, knowing how they work and their work conditions was super interesting for me um, and and uh, I concluded that we, we are closer than we thought we are. Thanks Rehab. In our research, in the research we are conducting on uh, media debates on the Nile in Ethiopia, in Sudan and Egypt, what we uh, found out so far is that most of the time the different countries like Ethiopia, Egypt or Sudan are portrayed as character. Eh? You have Ethiopia thinks that or Egypt fears that and Sudan act this way and so on. So their countries are portrayed as person, as living entity, while the real living entity, the, the river, is never portrayed as such. Of course, it's, it might be <laughs> easier to interview a government official than a river, but from a journalist's perspective, what does it mean to talk on behalf of the river? Exactly. Actually, what you just said is not just like the Nile problem, it's a journalistic problem in general. It's easier to talk about politics and people want to sell newspapers and magazines, so they, they want these hot topics, they want this politics. And even the readers, they want to, to read that kind of stuff, but people don't usually read about rivers or environmental challenges or water problems. So it's a little bit tricky. The journalistic policy problem, what, what the editors think. I think there should be um, capacity building and awareness for the, the editors themselves, not just the journalists. Thanks, Elzara. And Esther, can you think of stories that you've published in the Niles in which the journalists speak for the river? Yes, some of the stories we've been we've been reporting are really amazing. There are issues that other people don't look at, that stories that you never hear other other journalists and organizations and the government speaking about. For example, I recently uh, reported a story called uh, what what the local people can do to protect the river. And I was amazed to find a man somewhere around the source of the Nile, 
in Uganda, the source of the Nile in Jinja, Uganda. Yes, he's, he's a teacher and he's concerned about how the river is becoming dirty every day. So he organizes his students every twice a month to go to the river and clean um, on the river banks. So he's been trying to fundraise for money to buy boats so that he and the students can go deeper into the river and clean, clean up the trash that um, the villagers throw into the water. Interesting. Thank you. And the final question. Imagine you could finally interview the Nile River. What would the river itself say? Yeah, I, I would I would say that the river would say enough, um, like in, enough uh, division, enough uh, corruption, enough uh, pollution, a lot of things. Uh, uh, people need to be to, to, to come together and uh, do more uh, cooperative uh, and uh, collective work uh, with regards to Nile. Enough enough of those uh, conflicts and yeah, this is basically what I think it it would be said. Thanks, Rehab. And Esther, what would the river tell you? I think there are three important things the river Nile would say to me if I, if I had the chance to, to interview it. The first thing would be, I love the people of the Nile Basin. That's why I keep supplying them with water, transport, fertile riverbanks, and great fish, despite them doing everything wrong to destroy me. And the second thing would be, um, if only they could stop building dams like the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam that block my flow, I would give them better fish. Because the fish that lives in me needs to migrate from one side of me to another so that they acquire new aquatic life for them to be productive. But if they build dams on top of me, then the fish can't migrate and then that way I can't give them fleshy, good, tasty fish. And then I think it would also say don't litter me with garbage and human waste because I'll become toxic for you to use. And even though it may not happen now, I might extinguish and you'll never see me again and they will miss a lot from me. I think those are the three important things uh, the river now would say to me. And you, Elzara? What do you think? I think it would say save me. Save me. Uh, well, the voices of the river I can hear from you are all quite worried and pointing at ecological concerns which unfortunately do not make the headlines as water security or national interest do when it comes to the Nile. So, thanks a lot for pointing at these other issues And thanks for joining our podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you too. In the Water Governance Group at IHE Delft, the Institute for Water Education, We claim that water governance is about distribution. Not only distribution of water, but also distribution of voice and authority to make decisions about water. Throughout this podcast, 
we've been trying to host as many different voices as possible to reflect the plurality of interests and perspectives around the Nile River. And today, we've been trying to give voice to the Nile itself, discussing what does it mean to speak for a river. And this was the last episode of the first series of this podcast. Now we will take a break of a few months to recharge our battery and to come back with more voices and new ideas. So stay tuned. In doing this podcast, I realized that it is not just about communication. A podcast can be also a tool for research, to generate new data and insights, and also it is a great opportunity to connect with people, to build relations and take care of these relations. So there are many people to thanks for this. First of all, the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs for supporting our project on media, science and water diplomacy in the Nile Basin. Thanks also to the Nile Project for the music and of course to Emily Baust for the editing. And also a big thank you to all the guests that have contributed to the podcast and of course to our listeners. Thanks for following us and for your feedback. I am Emanuele Fantini and we've been searching and we will keep searching for the sources of the night.